we understand morals and values and that the importance of respecting one another. But perhaps the flip side to that is when we stand back and do nothing when we see that inequality or injustice are taking place. Welcome to the Kelly Limber Podcast. I'm your host, business mentor, personal brand and style expert on a personal mission to inspire a minimum of five people daily to take action, do something different, or just show up as the best person that you aspire to be. I want to say a massive thank you to everyone since the podcast has started for sending me direct messages on Instagram saying, how much something that you've listened to has sparked something or just made you go out your way or just do something different because this is the goal and I absolutely love it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. If you're one of my five a day, so if you've been inspired by something that you've listened to, then awesome. Please drop a review on Apple Podcasts or come and say hi on Instagram. I'd love to meet you. So this morning I had a cup of tea over Zoom with Jessica Smith. Now, she has an incredible story of triumphs and tribulations. She was born with her left arm missing and then suffered horrific accident when she was a toddler where she actually sustained burns to up to 15% of her body. But she ended up going on to represent her country in the sport of swimming for seven years and she was chosen to represent the Australian Paralympic team in 2004. So we talk about how this chapter actually ended and what it's led to now since retiring, where she's now known as a recognized advocate for positive body image, diversity and inclusion and disability awareness. So from inspiring talks with school children, she talks about some of the the cute and interesting things that children ask to really being very serious and changing cultural and diversity issues within large corporate organizations. So stay tuned for a really interesting and thought-provoking episode. Welcome to the show, Jess. It's great to have you on here. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So now I came across you, and I will say for the very first time, just recently at Lindsay's opening of El Couture. So Lindsay, if you haven't listened to her podcast episode, I think it's episode six. It's really good about how she launched the collection of El Couture. So you were there at her official opening. Tell me how that all came about. And then maybe just kind of give us a bit of a backstory as to, you know, what you're doing, what brought you to Dubai and what you're up to now. Yeah, sure. So Lindsay and the team from Tish Tash, so her PR, Uh, reached out to me as she was sort of in the process of creating the brand, um, just as a way to sort of, I guess, you know, talk about feedback of products and things like that. I'm a a former athlete. And I suppose as somebody living with a disability, I was born with my missing my left arm. And the work that I've done, which I'll obviously talk about this morning over the past few years, it was just an opportunity for her to sort of, you know, I guess, touch into that realm of diversity, which we all know here in the UAE is quite limited anyway. So yeah, it sort of just became a a professional relationship. And then as, you know, her brand started to evolve and grow rapidly, which was fantastic, at their launch event, they asked me to to come in and be one of the, the panelists who were speaking about women empowerment and positive body image. 
and how that all ties in, you know, with with her brand and then obviously with my background as well. So yeah, I mean, it's really exciting to be here in the UAE at this time. Uh, I've only been here two years, but to see just how much has grown and evolved in that time, even during COVID, when it comes to women and what women are doing in this space and across its range of industries. And I think it's just really exciting time to be here. And, you know, the more that women can support one another and be part of each other's empowerment, you know, I think we're onto something here when it comes to watching females take into those leadership roles more. So yeah, exciting times. Amazing. So you've grown up with, you know, an environment. I just, I was curious to maybe know if you've you know, you grew up in Australia. Did you get into sport at an early age or, or what happened? What was the connection there? And then I'm probably quite curious to know what it was like being in Australia, um, maybe with disability versus here and how people see it. Because I imagine it's quite different, but I would want to hear from your your perspective. Yeah, it is very different. So to go back to the beginning, I was born missing my left arm. And to this day, there's no explanation as to why that happened. It was just one of those unfortunate things. Some of the science and medical research now suggests that it was a blood clot in very early development, but you know, I I still have a lot of unanswered questions. And so for me growing up, you know, from as young as I can remember, I was always questioning my identity and my physical appearance and why, you know, I had to be living with a disability. When I was 18 months of age, I was fitted with my first prosthetic arm. You know, the doctors told my parents that it was Help me have a somewhat normal childhood and it would help with my development. But unfortunately, it led to a devastating kitchen accident where I knocked boiling water onto myself and I sustained burns, third degree burns to 15% of my body because I was using my fake arm so I couldn't feel or detect the heat and I knocked the kettle down onto myself. Yeah, so as a child, you know, there was a lot of trauma in those early years and although I don't remember a lot about those significant events, you know, growing up in a world where beauty and appearance is so heavily associated with success, you know, I was trying to find my way and understand why my differences were seen in such a negative light. And, you know, I was, I was quite shy and quite embarrassed, but there was all, also this innate ability or desire to push against the barriers and to push against the, the labels that mainly adults were giving me, you know, that my life would be difficult and I would struggle and just not feeling that within myself, wanting to prove that I was so much more than my appearance. And that's how the the love for sport came about, because I think it was me wanting to move my body and to show that I could do things rather than, you know, sort of living in that space where disability is seen as somebody who has broken, mm. somebody who can't do things. Yeah. Um, sport was just that natural progression. And, you know, growing up in Australia, as a generalisation, we're quite a sporty nation. <laughs> and I grew up with three younger brothers. And so it, it just felt the natural sort of thing for, for me to be doing. And I fell in love with swimming um, because I guess from a young age, I was quite talented. You know, I was selected onto my first Australian swimming team when I was 13. And, you know, it's quite young to be traveling the world and representing your country. But I did that for, for seven years and it was a phenomenal experience. You know, I got to basically see the world uh, in that time representing Australia. And I, even though on the outside it appeared, you know, that everything was fantastic and I was, you know, doing very well academically as well as in my sporting career, behind closed doors was a different story because 
you know, I was a teenage girl still struggling with going through puberty and wanting to fit in and wanting to be accepted and all those things that, you know, young teenagers and adolescents go through. Again, still trying to find my place in a world where I I didn't feel as though I fit in in a world that essentially isn't designed for people living with a disability or differences. And so I really struggled with, with negative body image. And at 14, I was officially diagnosed with bulimia, anorexia, and depression. But because of the horrendous stigma that exists with those mental illnesses, it was something that I kept secret throughout my entire swimming career. But of course, you know, by the time I'd sort of reached the peak and the the pinnacle of my swimming career, um, which was at the Paralympic Games in Athens in 2004, it sort of was like the most amazing thing, but also the worst part of that period of my life because my body just started to to give way and unravel because of my eating disorder. So I was supposed to medal in, in Athens, but I was the only member of the Australian swimming team to not make a final. And it is, it is honestly taking me so many years to even verbalize that out loud because, again, of the shame and the guilt. Mm. But for me, it's important because it's a significant part of my story because obviously not every elite sports person goes on to win gold at the Olympics or Paralympic Games. And, you know, there are so many people who need to have their stories told and heard in order to understand why. And I think for me, one of the biggest struggles was feeling that I couldn't give myself a voice around the the negative body image and the eating disorder struggles because I felt as though I was already a burden on society because I lived with a disability. So Mm. therefore, who was I to have all these extra struggles? And so it was better just to keep them them quiet and sort of live in silence. But of course, it came to an end when my my swimming career um, was shattered, basically. I was told that, you know, I had to retire and I returned to Australia and was admitted to a rehab facility in Sydney. And I spent six weeks there as an inpatient. And, you know, the cliche side of the story is that that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because that was the ultimate turning point, you know, of reaching my complete rock bottom to realize that there was so much more worth living and that, you know, I had to just trust in that recovery process and trust that next step, even though I was terrified of what that might be. And I certainly terrified of letting go of my swimming career because I didn't want to just be a female with a disability. So it's been a very tumultuous ride up until till now. And, you know, throughout that experience, really coming to terms with what disability is, what it means to me, what it means to the rest of society and how I can respectfully and gently try to educate and, I guess, inform people in a way that helps society as a collective to be more inclusive and more understanding of of what disability actually is. So that's kind of the space that I'm in at the moment. But my my swimming career has certainly given me so many parallels in, in the work that I do now today. Yeah, I can imagine. But just to backtrack a little bit, what age were you? Um, when you sort of came back to Australia and that was your kind of turning point? So I was 19 and, you know, which essentially is so young anyway, yes, you know. Absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I held on to swimming for a little bit longer, but I officially retired when I was 21. And, you know, I, I suppose that's quite an average age when we're talking in swimming career because you start so young. But really, I look back now and think I, I was so 
um, innocently naive in many ways, uh, thinking that my life was was completely over because my swimming career was over. But obviously now looking back and really realising that it was just one chapter in, in everything, you know, that life is about. You know, given your sort of experience that you've gone through, how would someone spot, you know, and I say someone like, you know, whether you're a mom, an auntie, a friend, or, you know, just someone going through that age and kind of not just put it down to, oh, it's the stress of the Paralympics or it's the stress of just being a teenager. What are some of the things that, you know, from your experience, people could watch out for? Or how could you help someone? It's a really good question. And I think it's obviously gotten even more difficult for people to be able to identify behaviours of a loved one who might be experiencing negative body image or eating disorders because you know, the the introduction of social media and people mm. spending a lot more time online has made that challenge even more complicated. But I think for, for young people, men as well, who have become a little bit more withdrawn and who have, you know, obvious different behaviours around food intake and perhaps exercise, making excuses to perhaps not socialise and instead exercise or avoid food in, in certain ways. And I think there are some very practical ways that parents in particular and, and family and friends can start to identify whether or not, you know, a loved one is experiencing those negative thoughts or feelings. And of course, negative thoughts and feelings towards our body are something that every single one of us has experienced at different stages of our life. Mm-hmm. But it's when that starts to become all-consuming and, you know, it's it's getting in the way of study or it's getting in the way of, of socialising. And I think that's a really big one. And also why it's more complicated because a lot more of our socialising at the moment is online. And so it can be hard to differentiate between when somebody might be socialising with friends online or whether or not they're actually withdrawing completely. So I think also being aware of what resources are available here in the Middle East, there are some amazing organisations set up to help, you know, adolescents in particular around mental health and also those who might be struggling with eating disorders. So it's just knowing that if, if you feel as though a loved one might be experiencing negative body image issues, how can you sort of help to support them in, in the best way possible? And, and also knowing that none of us ever have all the answers. And so mm. just being prepared to, to walk with that person on their, their journey um, without necessarily thinking that you're going to be the one to fix that, I think is mm. really important for parents to know. Really good tips. So kind of looking out for the, the sort of the, the withdrawn or just doing different behaviours that they wouldn't normally do, knowing resources that you can suggest if you think that um, they might need something like that. And I guess just always offering, you know, is everything okay or checking in or, or, or um, you know, just being there. It's a huge thing, this sort of identity piece. And, and, you know, clients that I mentor find the identity piece when, you know, their children have grown up or, and, and they're not, you know, the traditional mum role, you know, your identity through swimming, that it wasn't, you know, you weren't under the other label of this. You had something behind you that w- was you. What would be your your sort of tips or suggestions for someone who is maybe going through a little bit of an identity? I don't want to say crisis because it feels like a crisis at the time, but it's just an evolution. And through branding and personal brand, we're always evolving. So what would kind of be some of your steps to deal with that if someone's going through that right now? Yeah, I think you raise a really good point. It's about 
trusting and knowing that we're, we are always forever evolving. So not ever wanting to stay stagnant or in the one place. Mm-hmm. And that involves trusting in the unknown and being willing to take that first step, knowing that the next steps are going to evolve, even if you can't see all the pieces of the puzzle coming together right now. And a lot of what I do revolves around visualization. So I learned this in my swimming career, you know, about seeing myself winning the race and seeing myself in situations where, you know, if I'm talking at an event and on stage, visualizing that so many times to the point where it feels as though I've actually already done it so that when I'm in the moment, I feel comfortable and confident. And I think that for anyone who might be, you know, on the, the you know, the fence of sort of wanting to make certain decisions or, or, or not, um, you know, certainly women and, and mothers, there are a lot of obstacles in front of us, you know, that, that's a reality that we all face. So trying to, to put that into some sort of reality focus when it comes to visualizing where we see ourselves in the future not expecting it to be a linear progression, but knowing, okay, there's going to be bumps and curves along the way. How can we best support ourselves so that it's not a huge surprise or shock when we get there? So I think, you know, working with people like yourselves and networking, speaking to other women who are essentially where you might want to be, you know, and I think one of the best quotes or or sort of memes that I've ever seen is that you'll never be criticized by anyone doing more than you. And I think as women, we have to take that on, you know, it's very, very powerful because, you know, if we can, if we can work with one another and communicate with one another to help one another, because there's more than enough, we don't all want to do the same thing, you know, so that benefits us. There's, there's never anything wrong with reaching out and getting that little bit of coaching or getting that mentorship um, because it helps guide us. It helps us to perhaps see things that, you know, we were unable to see before because of the different obstacles that are in front of us. You know, it takes, you know, a third party sometimes, friends or family to be able to say, well, hang on, let's help navigate this path for you. So, you know, it's not always easy, but it it is possible because there's so many people who have walked that path or a similar path before us. So I think being able to reach out and say, okay, well, how did you do it? You know, and and, and taking bits of information and advice to apply to to your own life is is really, really important. Mm, Great advice. None other um, memes that I've seen there's a couple there one is um you've never you can never live long enough was it you can never live long enough to make all the mistakes yourself so learn from others and exactly I think exactly so relevant because people you know it's not yeah. business but people are like no I don't want to ask for help or I don't want to you know share this I should be able to have the answers myself and it's like just ask yeah absolutely um, absolutely there's never any harm and another one there that I was thinking about, and I thought was really interesting. Someone in HR told me this before, um, and it was some sort of study and where inter- the difference between interviewing men and women. And when women were interviewed about a particular role, and let's just say there was some of the aspects that she couldn't do, they would say, oh, I'm not sure how to do this, or, you know, I can't do this, or they would be really honest. But in asking the men the same questions, even if they didn't have the skills, they still said that they could do it. And I thought that was really interesting that women are on that aspect of being, you know, I say really honest, but, you know, they'll, they'll disclose their, their weaknesses versus, and again, this is a generalization, it's not all men and women. Um, but again, about that aspect that you were saying about, you know, ask for help. 
Yes, definitely. And, you know, you're spot on. You know, I did some um, studies at NCAD recently on gender diversity and, you know, it's astounding that in all those processes for, let's say, applying for a job at every stage, a female will put themselves, you know, at the back end. And exactly like you said, let's disclose all our weaknesses first so that, you know, just in case it's like, well, why don't we disclose all of our strengths first and, and exactly say, this isn't an area that I might not be experienced in yet, but I'll learn and I'll figure out how to do it. And I think, you know, that that goes back to so many things within society about how women are raised versus how men are raised. And I think, you know, we're, we're slowly starting to unpack a lot of that. But for, for people or for, for women in particular of, of our generation, we're in this really significant transition. And for a lot of us, it's an awkward stage because we have to be, I guess, the ones that step out and and make those bold statements and bold decisions. But we have to do that, right? We have to do that because for future generations, you know, we are paving the way. And and I think that, you know, we're seeing more and more women feeling confident to do that. But I think not enough. You know, we're, we're getting there slowly. And um, you're right. I think we need to focus on more of what we can do. But again, it's this whole societal thing of, of, you know, well, let's work on our weaknesses to better ourselves. And I think that absolutely, but it, there's nothing wrong with telling everyone what we're good at. And that doesn't have to be ego attached to that, you know, and I think that that's a, um, something that women have to work a lot harder at. Even myself, you know, being able to, to say anything positive about myself took a very, very long time because I always associated that with having an ego and nobody wanted to see a female with an ego. Um, and we have to change that dialogue. You know, we have to change that conversation because that's not what it is at all. And if we're ever going to make significant grounds, then we have to allow one another to praise, you know, ourselves and each other. That's, that's how it works. And, you know, the recent stats suggest that, you know, gender equality is 99 years away. You know, um, wow. so we've got a long way to go, but it starts with with the conversations that we're having now with one another. Is that so? Ninety nine years, they reckon. Yeah, yeah, that's it's, insane. I um, I, I hosted a, a personal branding workshop a few weeks ago. It was a yeah personal branding audit, and traditionally, I seem to attract women to to most of my events. And um, I had this one guy in a room. Uh, it was twelve of us, and he was the only guy. Last the 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 um, workshop the week before was you know all women anyway so this week and he's like he said this is a really interesting feeling because he said I am surrounded by women and he said I imagine that at the level he was the CEO of a big advertising agency and he just said I imagine that this is what it's like the other way around for women in meetings and he said it feels he said it feels really weird good weird but it feels weird yeah and I'm, I'm actually really shocked at that 99 years yeah, it was, you know, some information that came out around International Women's Day this year. And, you know, I remember thinking, oh, you can be sort of disillusioned by by those numbers as well, those, the, that data, because it can be exhausting. You know, I think that the term gender fatigue is something that, you know, many of us are talking about now as, as well, is that we're still having these conversations and we're still trying to push you know, for, for equality and for, for justice really in, in so many areas. And it can be hard when you hear a number like that to, to stay motivated. But for me, as, as a mother of three, I think I'm doing this for my children, for my daughter, absolutely, but also for my sons. You know, I have two young boys and I think, if anything, they must be part of this conversation. They must be part of the solution 
And they only learn that through what I role model in my behavior. And so I think it's a big responsibility we have on our generation, but it's well worth it knowing that if we make just a few little tiny gains, by the time our children come through and grandchildren come through, you know, this world will be a very different place. What are some things that, I don't know, maybe organizations or even individuals can do? You know, because when when you talk about something like, oh, supporting charities, it can seem like such a big, you know, you don't know where to start or gender equality. It just seems something so big that how does someone, just one person or one organization make a difference? I don't know, any suggestions? If someone's listening, well, they could bring this into their company or as a person, what could they be doing? Yeah, I think this is an incredible question because it's often the one that's so easily overlooked because so many of us do. We become so overwhelmed because Mm. the problem seems too big, too large, but everyone can be doing, doing something at an individual level. And for me, it draws right back down to respect. If we respect one another, on the same basis from the taxi driver to the barista who makes our coffee in the morning. We then role model those behaviours to our families and to our friends. And if we start within those circles, it's going to make a huge difference, a huge ripple effect, so that then when we do walk into the workplace, how are we treating every staff member from the cleaner to, you know, the people in admin and reception right up to, you know, the CEO? I find that a lot of the the clients that I work with, you know, the, the C-suite, they understand it. They get it, right? They get that diversity is good for business. It's good for the economy. But what we have to understand is that often in middle management, people want to know what's in it for them. And, and rightfully so. They want to know how they're contributing, how they're part of the process. So I think that a lot of organizations need to tweak KPIs to make sure that it's inclusive for everybody so that they feel that when it comes to gender equality, you know, how how does this matter to me? And and I think that especially here in this region, you know, that's a significant way that we can make some shifts and some changes is that people feel part of the process. And, you know, when it comes to, to, to senior management and to, you know, CEOs, I feel that, you know, there's a lot of discussion at that level. But what we're missing is that conversation right in the middle. And, um, you know, I think what happens is when you look at the end of the spectrum, so, okay, how we respect one another at home, how we respect, you know, everyone that we see at the supermarket to our CEOs respecting us as employers. And as that comes together and filters through, you know, we have more of a chance to have conversations where we're like, okay, well, I can make more of an impact. And if my KPIs... Uh, something that I can contribute to and I feel as though I'm having an active role in that, then they're more likely to to feel as though they're part of the solution and want to be part of the solution, I guess, is the important part. So, you know, it's about having these conversations at at every stage of, you know, socially and and professionally as well. And something like respect costs nothing. It's not, I need to do this, it's just, it's it's nothing. It's it's absolutely nothing. So awesome. Yeah. And and again, it's something that we all know. We all know we should be doing it, but how can we do it consistently? I think is probably one of the the aspects that people do. Because I do think people on a day-to-day basis do respect maybe their spouse or their, you know, what someone close to them, but it's not a like you say, a consistent maybe for the ripple effect to make a difference. Yeah, exactly. And I think also that perhaps not enough people are calling it out when respect isn't there, you know, and I think 
Yeah. So maybe, you know, it, it, yes, I think you're right. We, we all understand that. We're all, you know, we understand morals and values and that the importance of respecting one another. But perhaps the flip side to that is when we stand back and do nothing, when we see that inequality or injustice are taking place, I think is really important too. Um, and again, being in this particular region, sometimes, you know, it's hard for people to speak up, you know, whether we're talking about social media or in public places, you know, it's, it's a little bit different. But if we always come back to, to respect, if we're watching something unfold in front of us and we know that it's not the right thing, we have to be able to have enough confidence and self-respect to say, hang on, that's not right. We can't let that continue. And it's things like that within the, the smaller social aspects and, and environments that are going to make that ripple effect change. So, yeah, I think we have to make sure we see both sides. I love that. Love it, love it, love it. So perhaps you could bridge the gap of, you know, finishing up, you know, officially retiring, which sounds bizarre at 21, but in your career, and maybe to where you are now, um, you know, because you've got a wealth of knowledge and what you've been through and experiences shared from organization organizations, but from a one-to-one level. So maybe just what is it, what's your your your, your role and, and what you're doing now? Yeah. So basically after I retired from my international swimming career, I was asked to come in and be a motivational speaker at schools and within organizations. Mm-hmm. And I was also working. So my background is in science and I was working in oncology for, for a long time. And it sort of got to the the tipping point where I was able to make a successful career out of being a public and motivational speaker on the topics of of body image and disability awareness that I decided to take that leap and and create my own brand and business off of that. And through that, you know, I've also authored children's books about diversity and difference. And so it all sort of comes under the umbrella of, of diversity and inclusion and then going on to do executive studies to understand more about gender diversity has helped me in the corporate setting as well. So I sort of wear a lot of hats, but if it all, you know, it all comes under diversity and difference and wanting to educate through sharing my personal story, but also accompanying that with the academic side of things to be able to you know, stand up and say, okay, well, I, I am sharing my story, but it's backed up by a lot of evidence as well. So it's it's been really fun, but I have to say the best audiences are the kids because yeah. I feel at such a young age, they haven't yet seen difference the way we do. And they mm-hmm. ask the most beautiful questions, the most innocent questions. Nine times out of 10, once I tell them that I was born with my arm, they're so uninterested and bored. You know, they want to know about the swimming career or they want to know about other things that are completely unrelated to my disability. And I just find it so refreshing. And I think that adults and parents have a responsibility to ensure that we don't project our own biases and ideas or fears onto our children. And so that's the space that I like to work in the most is trying to work with kids, but also work with with parents to say, okay, how can we make sure that our children are going to grow up respecting one another, respecting themselves, so that difference, disability, isn't seen in such a negative light in the future. Oh, come on, share us some of the cute questions that we ask. Questions that we ask. They'll ask me how I put my earrings in or if I can drive a car. You know, they'll want me to do handstands. I'm like, okay, you know, I, I don't think I can do a handstand, but that's not because I only have one hand. It's because, you know, well, just the, just the most bizarre things. And I think it's just, 
it's beautiful. Or they'll say, you know, oh, my mom has blonde hair. Or, you know, they'll start to find things that they see in me that then they can identify with people that they know in their own life. And I think that that's what's really special is when they can start to see similarities. You know, they don't see difference first. And that's just, you know, the, the most beautiful part of it all. But also being into schools where I talk about prosthetic limbs and, you know, wheelchairs and prosthetic legs. And, you know, I said to one group of students, you know, wouldn't that be amazing? You know, like, what what do you think about all of this? And they said, you know, having robotics and what if you could have a remote control to make you go faster or slower? And what if you could fly? So it's allowing them to, to have this space of imagination and creativity within diversity and difference and allowing them to explore that in a way that I think for so many of us, we were told we couldn't do. It wasn't possible. You know, disability is about trying to to fix what's broken in society. But if we let our children come from a different space where they see so many opportunities, then we can learn from them. And I think that that's, you know, it's very exciting. I'm just going to wrap up. So just one question and then we'll finish on the first one about Dubai and Australia and the differences. But I noticed in a lot of well, in all your pictures, you don't ever wear a prosthetic arm. So did you stop that after the uh, the kitchen accident or is it just you embrace it fully or? Yeah, I continued wearing an arm till I was about eight, but it was really awkward and really uncomfortable. And, you know, I think... A lot of medical professionals want to help by by fixing. And for me, I had to try and retrain my brain that I had two hands and I couldn't do that. It was, you know, and I think a lot of people didn't understand that, you know, this wasn't actually helping or fixing me. It was more of a hindrance than anything else. And so now, no, I I find it um, also expensive, you know, having to pay for them myself or parents and all, all of that, having to fork out so much money in my younger years. But now, no, there's nothing that I, I can't do without one. So I prefer not to wear one. Oh, very good. So maybe just finish up with that whole kind of, because I asked you two questions in the beginning and I'm like, I'm not going to forget it. So you moved to Dubai, you know, just sort of a couple of years ago from Australia. And, and in some ways, Dubai is so forward thinking and futuristic. And in other ways, I think it, this city, is, it, it, it has its own challenges. So what's that been like for you coming here? Because I, I can see what it's like for myself, but you'll know way better. Yeah. So we relocated to Australia, oh, sorry, to Dubai from Australia about two years ago for my husband's job. And in that time, it has been fascinating to see how disability is often hidden away. You know, I go to the supermarket and I feel so many eyes, you know, cast on really? me and the stairs and the pointing because people don't see disability, you know. And at first I was quite sort of, it was quite confronting. Um, but now I realise and understand, you know, cultural and and all the other, you know, complexities with how Dubai has rapidly grown over the years and wanting to, again, be a part of the process where I can help educate and so, you know, I, I often say to parents, you know, if you see me in the park and your child has a question, please let them come and ask me. I don't want children to feel that they can't talk about disability, even though, you know, for, for many people, that's what the, the advice has been. And, and you're so right, you know, in so many ways here in Dubai, we are very advanced. But I think what needs to happen is more people with a disability need to be included in the conversation from the ground up. So there needs to be not just a tokenistic, mm. performative, 
activism, you know, where we put somebody on stage or we put somebody in a photo. Exactly. There needs to be inclusion at every single stage and that's not what's happening at the moment. So that's what I would really like to see take place over the next sort of, you know, 12 to 18 months and then well on into the future because uh, people with a disability have a lot to contribute and people with a disability don't just want to talk about disability. You know, there's so much to an individual and disability is just a part of a person's life. And so that's what I hope to to educate people about here. And I think it's an exciting time because Mm -hmm. we as a society are are more aware and more willing to to listen. So I'm, I'm excited. Awesome. So where can people find you? Can you share your social media handles and your Mm -hmm. personal branded website? Yes. So please follow me at jessicasmith27 and my website is jessicasmith.com.au. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been an amazing insight into, you know, all aspects rather than, you know, sort of disability on one side, but like you see the diversity side into gender equality and, and, and how that's all shaping up. So um, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and I wish you the best of luck. I was going to say, my, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here and listening to this episode today. Were you inspired? What was one takeaway that you're going to know what that really resonated with me? I really want to hear from you. Head over to Instagram. I love to hang out there. Kelly Lundberg official. Drop me a DM. Tell me the best part or even better screen share it and um, share it with a friend and inspire them too. We are growing weekly and it's all down to you. Thank you so much. Reviewer of the week left this message. Great interview with three inspiring entrepreneurs. Well worth the listen. Lots learned and the story of Tish Tash was full of interest. From A Gunny 60, thank you so much. So please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcast. It really does make a massive difference. Until next time, be inspired and keep following your dreams.